0: You're exactly where you need to be. And you're listening to ADD Comedy with Dave Razowski. Today, we're re-releasing our pod chat with writer and actor Cindy Caponera. Cindy wrote, I Triggered Her Bully, a collection of hilarious and touching personal essays drawn from her experience growing up on Chicago's South Side. It was published on Kindle earlier, but was just released on audible.com, read by Cindy herself. Yes, Cindy's written for Saturday Night Live, Shameless and Nurse Jackie, But she's so much more. Cindy's smart, funny, pointed, spiritual, real, honest, and truthful. This is indeed one of my favorite interviews. Please enjoy.
1: If I want to go off the record, should I say, can we go off the record? Yeah,
0: say go off the record, but right now we're recording it. All right. Uh, But if you want to go off the record, there's something where you go, I just can't believe I said that. Well, you said it.
1: Do you edit before you...
0: No. We have edited some things where people later on went oh, you know what, that? what I said about my son being gay? Maybe he shouldn't hear that. <laughs> I know. And that was, we did that once. Somebody went, oh, I shouldn't have said that about my child. He's only a child. Um,
1: <laughs> who knows?
0: Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? So you left, you left Second City and you went to New York. Why did you go to New York?
1: I went to New York in 93 mm-hmm. because I was done at Main Stage.
0: You had had a, you'd had it.
1: And I didn't know what else to do. So my friend Christine Ebersole called called me, and asked me if I wanted to come. How do you know her? Here's what happened: in 1946, when I was learning how to improvise, they had just gotten street lights up on Wrightwood Avenue. No, I was at the Players Workshop, and I and one of the guys in my class was really good friends with Tony Ebersole, Christine's brother. Right. And he and I started dating. He was 10 years older than me, mm-hmm. and he sort of, I sort of. Did you of,
0: date older people?
1: I know I didn't. But what he was for me was my transition boyfriend from the south side to the north side.
0: Oh, I see. Because you wanted to get rid of, like, what was, what was the difference between well, the Well,
1: the difference was just the life I had on the south side and what was going to become my life as an artist and a person
0: on the north so side. So you didn't feel that you could do, everyone's so going a check to see how things are going. You didn't feel that you could do what you wanted to do on the south side?
1: There was nowhere to do it. Right. You could do some stuff, but there was nowhere to do... Second City. I mean, I was like Rose in that way. That Second City came to my college. Right. I saw them do Doctor Dictionary or whatever that one is. Look <laughs> up what you call.
0: Right, right. Look up balls. Look yes, up, exactly. Uh, yeah, Doctor. And Dictionary. then when they
1: said Doctor, when the voiceover came on, I thought I lost my shite. I'm like, what? They're doctors? Like, it was so right, retarded. Right, two guys
0: sitting on a chair and going, <laughs> look up, look up, uh, uh, look up, scotum, scrotum." Uh Look up, oh, and it's like, uh, Dr. Fountain, got your president. Exactly. But he's just like, okay, Yeah, okay.
1: I saw that blackout, and I was like, I have to do this. <laughs> so, that just goes to show you where I was. But, um, so... I was one of those people. I don't know how I got on this track. Oh, so anyhow, I was taking classes at Players Workshop. This is before there was a training center. Mm-hmm. And... Well,
0: um, you... You... I'm sorry, but it's like... I, I didn't realize how young you were when you started.
1: 14. You were really, young. No, really I was super young. young. You yeah. were super young. Yeah.
0: Because you, you were there before the... Because I think that Bonnie Hunt was in the... Was, in, was one of the first people in the training center. I yeah. Think Joe Bill... Uh, Pesquese, Pesquese was there. was yeah. there. Like these are the people that were at the beginning of this. And wasn't it just Donnie DiPolo teaching?
1: At the training center? I don't know. Oh, because you weren't there. I wasn't there. Donnie was my first touring company director. Right. Um, uh, who is,
0: it, who, is in the, who is in Players Workshop and, with you?
1: In my Players Workshop, I don't think you know any of them, really. Uh, one of them, I found out, is now sort of a food guy on local NBC... In Chicago? In Chicago. He was the one that, that we had a lot of guys in my class from advertising. Right. And um, anyhow, he was the guy that always made the flyers. He right. was in my first group <clears throat> called Identity Crisis, and we won the first cross-currents competition. This was before there was an I.O. Right. It was just mostly like theater games, kind right. of. But um, So was
0: that with David Shepard?
1: It was with Sharna pre-Dell. Got it. But it was funny because one of the guys in my company, Identity Crisis, whose name was Scott King, became the mayor of Gary, Indiana. So when I was at SNL, I, call, I saw that he was the mayor and I called him. I'm like, and his secretary answered. I'm like, yes, this is Cindy Caponera from Identity Crisis. And he got on the phone, he's like, don't ever. He basically said, I can never call him again.
0: <laughs> I'm
1: like, you're the mayor of Gary, Indiana.
0: Wow! Wow! <laughs> wow! Uh, so Ebersole. So you. Oh, so
1: anyhow, I'm. I can't even remember his friend's name. I start dating Tony, Tony, and through him, I meet Christine.
0: Who now? Now explain who Christine is.
1: Christine Ebersole is, as you know, a two-time Tony Award-winning actress. She's been in a gazillion movies. She's right. currently on Sullivan and Sons. Um, she's always worked right. is, since I've known her.
0: And a Chicago lady.
1: She's from Wilmette. A Winnetka, right?
0: But she's a Chicago area actress. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, uh-huh. and just right.
1: one of the most gorgeous singers you'll ever hear, and she won her Tonys for Forty Second Street and the uh, Grey Gardens. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, this is a long time. Did ago. you see her
0: on Broadway? Have you ever seen her? On yes, Broadway?
1: I saw her in Grey Gardens, and I saw her. Oh, I don't know if I saw her in Forty Second Street, but when she called for me to be her nanny. Of a son she had just adopted, uh-huh. she was working out Paper Moon at the Paper Mill in New Jersey uh-huh. and was going to open it on Broadway in a few months.
0: So you were in New York. This is pre-you writing on SNL. Yes. This is, so you, you went to SNL after you left Second City when you, got, when you did get to the main stage.
1: No, I went to New York without knowing what was going to happen, uh-huh. and I wound up being on Exit 57 with Paul and Amy and those guys, and from that, a guy that I went to acting school in New York with and years ago became producer of SNL, and that's how I got hired.
0: You so did I one just went to New York. Who was in your main stage comedy?
1: I, I took over for Holly. Right. Uh, in the Pasquazi, whatever that machination, uh, Odenkirk, Farley. Meadows. They, Meadows, they were all in there originally, and Jill.
0: Right, Jill Talley.
1: Yes, and then those guys all left. I think Rabano and Carell came up, and Michael McCarthy. Right. And that was my main stage company.
0: Isn't it weird to look back on that? Because I look back on that and then I go, oh, look at those guys, so oh, how did they get up there? And look, and where did she come from, and all that? And well, all people, that little petty bullshit uh, the that The politics is
1: what killed me. I couldn't, and I only went back there... Because a year before, I had a meeting with Joyce, and I was... Joyce Sloan. Joyce Sloan, and I was going to do my one-woman show at the ETC space. What was the name of your one-woman show? Against the Grain. It was about the firemen strike of 1981, because mm-hmm. my father was a retired fire chief. Mm-hmm. And after I did that show, she asked me if I wanted to replace Holly. So I went in and replaced Holly. Holly left on really short notice.
0: Holly went to L.A.,
1: yeah, with Bonnie, right? Yeah,
0: so there's that phrase that uh, Holly went to Bonniewood. Have you ever heard that phrase? No,
1: that's hilarious. Isn't that an awesome
0: phrase? Holly went to Bonniewood. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's hilarious.
0: <laughs> so anyhow,
1: I only did a year on main stage, so I only really did one um, review. But mm-hmm. um,
0: well, you've been around. I'm cutting you off like a motherfucker. Uh, you are, uh, not because for any reason other than I'm excited. So you, you've always been a writer,
1: no. I always wrote my own stuff. Yes. Yes. I always wrote my own stuff as an actor because I didn't like auditioning. Right. So that's why even when I was doing sketch shows, I, was, I think at an early stage, there was a show we were doing called On the Ledge or Off the Ledge. It was me and Ron West and Kevin... Um, Kevin, who drives the pedicabs. Kevin Burroughs. Kevin, Kevin Burroughs. Catherine Machan. Uh-huh. uh And another really funny friend of Ron's that I can't remember right now. And even then, I was doing, like, little monologs mm-hmm. And then... I watched... What I did was I wound up watching... Um, What was that Arthur Miller play? It was on PBS. With, All My Sons with yes, Aiden Quinn. Yes, I watched it, like...
0: That is one of the greatest things I've ever seen on television.
1: 750 e- times. Oh, my God.
0: Aidan Quinn at the end of that. Oh, my God. What's his name? What's his name? The- James Whitmore. James Whitmore.
1: And the Polish guy whose name you can never pronounce. Right. He's into everything now. Yes. And, de- and, man- and de- um, Joan Allen.
0: Yes. Oh, my God. That was one of the best things I've ever seen. All My Sons. It was PBS and Aiden Quinn. You look at Aiden Quinn and you go, you are one handsome Oh, my God. Motherfucker. Gay man. It's gay, right? No.
1: He's Aiden Quinn, no.
0: Okay, why do I think he's gay? No. All
1: right. Because I know a couple of people who've had Aiden
0: who've Quinn. Been <laughs>
1: who've been quinned? You've been quinned. But I had a videotape of that. Uh huh. And I must have watched it 700 times. And then I wound up, at the same time, I was trying to do this character, this fireman character. I, don't ask me why. I was living in an attic apartment. I did my dishes in the tub. Who knew why? Right. Um, in Chicago? Yes. I got it from Jane Voight. She left. Mm-hmm. She went to LA. Right. And I took it from her. It was like $190 a month.
0: Mhm. Right look, up- look at all the fucking people we know.
1: I know it's crazy. You know what I mean?
0: And they you talk about Jane, you talk about uh, Catherine Michon, you know who I haven't thought about in so long. And I know. Most people are listening to this and I don't even know who those people are. The point is so many creative people. You don't have to know who they are. You have to know <laughs> you don't have to know who they are. You have to know that we have surrounded ourselves or been surrounded by some pretty awesome human beings.
1: Always. Yeah, the community is so far-reaching mm-hmm. and so uh, generational now and so just a beautiful, beautiful community.
0: And I think that so many people have that community and, and I think a lot of people need to stop and go, oh, I am not alone wherever it is that I am. I've got this community. Right. You needed a place to stay. So Jane and you needed a place, you needed a job. So Miss um, Ebersol got you a, a job.
1: 10 years after the fact, when I was no, and what happened was Chris wound up dating my brother for a while. Mm-hmm. My brother seems to stay really good friends with like people that I've dated. Right. So at any rate, I go to, it's 93. I leave Chicago, like in a big way. I had already gone to New York two other times. Once before I got hired by Second City, mm-hmm. I moved there and I was going to, I actually started doing stand up like twice. I did stand up twice. No. I don't know what I was doing there. And um, that's when I went to the American Academy, anyhow, I wound up moving there. I get a call saying, Joyce, they're hiring at Second City. They want you to come back and audition. So that happened. So then in 88, I go back to New York again to film school for a summer. And then 93, and I always felt this pull, like I should go there, I need to go there. To New York. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And I always thought, I always saw myself as like going to Yale and going to act, like getting my MFA in acting. Right. In fact, when I got to New York, I was already not a young person, and I went to Juilliard, and they're like, you can't come here, you're too old. (laughs) I'm like, what? I'm only 67, so I didn't know what I was going to do there. And then I wound up doing Exit 57 for two seasons and working like part-time. At- what was
0: it like writing on that show?
1: That was really fun.
0: Uh-huh. So it was, uh huh. So it was Colbert, Paul Dinello, Amy Sedaris, Greg Holliman. He wasn't a writer, though. No,
1: he wasn't on. He was on Strangers with Candy. That's
0: right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
1: So Mitch, Mitch and Rose Jody Lennon.
0: And Jody Lennon. They were the writers as they well. They were the
1: cast, and I was a writer kind of performer.
0: Right. And
1: look at that. Oh, my God. Look at that. That's cuckoo town. That was sketch. That was sketch, Uh and it all took place. And, you know, they have that, um, Amy and Paul and Stephen always had that thing about wanting to do something in the same town, you know. So that was fun. That was two seasons. It was a little, at the time, they, it was funny because I met Stephen and Paul when I was on main stage, and they would come up and understudy all the time. Right, right. So that's kind of, I met all those people at my second go at Second City, Mm -hmm. after I quit and came back.
0: right. My it's God. Cuckoo. It's and, and And also that triumvirate, Amy Sedaris, Paul Dinello, Stephen Colbert. And that that triumvirate, that was a tough nut to crack into. And whenever you did a scene on main stage with one of those guys... Um, you always kind of felt the others like going, "What? Where's mine? How come I? What?" And not in a bad way, right? It going, was just
1: very—they were very insular.
0: Very, very insular. And I remember the greatest compliment that Danello ever gave me. Colbert and I did a scene called uh, CIA, and he said, "I really wish I was in that scene with you guys." So it's like, "That's great. That's great." <laughs> Amy Paul, and Steve did a scene called Black Mollies. Do you remember that? Is at that all? the
1: one where they're asking the son or the kid who they like yeah, the best? Yeah, they're rowing
0: in a boat, and it's like, "Who do you like best?" If Mom dropped off the, who would you? If we both fell overboard, who? Who would you rescue? And uh, Colbert was smoking a pipe and he yeah. goes, who would you rescue? And, like, what? and Amy would be like, Who would you rescue, son? Who would you rescue? And that that scene is one of the most beautiful scenes. Those guys
1: I know, they had something really special. Really special.
0: And it wasn't just about comedy. It was about real characters. But it was also about comedy. Yes, but it, it was, was
1: always about, yeah. Well, you know, she's such a character. Uh, embodier, you know, such an aficionado in terms of she can only op- she only operates from that place. Right. She has a lot of ideas and a lot of ruminations about things that she would like to see and a lot of moments that she would like to play, but it all has to go- get filtered through this thing. Right. So, I think that's what makes her a better vehicle in terms of storytelling as a performer
0: than, than a writer. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. She would come in with ideas. She came in, uh, and I think I mentioned it on the podcast before, she came in one day during a rehearsal, because I think did three or four shows with her, with Amy, and she came in with, somehow she went to a taxidermist and got deer claws and was able, and manufacture them or work them into so that they would pinch, pinch, and she wanted to play a character and, a, and and that was that was pretty much the night right. of it all, right there. And that's Always. what you got.
1: Wheelchairs, squirrels, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you are just like okay, right? Like the and her craft books are insane,
0: right? Right.
1: They're gorgeous and they're hilarious and they're.
0: I remember going to her house once for and David, her brother David, and Paul, her brother Paul. They got her a gift, and the gift was she. They bought her a wheelchair.
1: Yeah, that wooden one. Yeah, that old doctory one. Yeah. yeah.
0: She was so really excited about it. They bought her a wheelchair. She wanted a wheelchair. I know, Cindy. I know. That's what she Believe wanted.
1: Believe me, I know. I was lucky enough when I was doing Nurse Jackie last. The year, I right, don't know what years it is.
0: Yes. You did two seasons. One. One season.
1: I only do one season <laughs> and then I move on. No, um, but we were able to spend a lot of kind of reconnect and spend a lot of time together when I was in New York this oh, last time. Oh, I see. Time. Not that
0: she was on Miss Jackie. You just were no. Able to spend I was some time just
1: there. yeah. So I was there for like seven months, six months, mm-hmm. and so we got to you know chat and see each other and hang out with Paul and the baby and um,
0: Nick. Paul and the baby. Oh, Paul's baby.
1: Paul's baby. Not Amy's baby. Paul Danello married um, Danielle, beautiful girl, and they had a little boy, Gene Is he going
0: to... He He, must be going to to CBS, too.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm sure of it. I mean, I can't make those statements, but I know that... I'm sure that Stephen likes having... I mean, he's been on the show for like four or five years.
0: Right. At least four or five years, right? Not
1: since the beginning. Really? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. He He did some
1: segment stuff in the Uh beginning, and I think he had some conflict about you know, taking that step. But he's a, I'm sure he's a, you know.
0: How do we, how do we end up doing what it is that we're doing? Uh, you know, I, I know that that's a really vague question, but who would I mean, I'm looking at your producing credits, and you produce television shows. You were supervising. Producers. I know, it's crazy. And, and like, you just kind of go, this is where, this is the direction I'm going, and now I was writing on this show, and now I'm going to be a writer-producer. Is that how that works?
1: Well, the writing thing is is um what's that word I want? That ambiguous. It's um deceiving because when you're on a show you always write. Mm-hmm. No matter what your additional producing uh duties are. It's just weird because like when you're at SNL, you're in charge of your own sketch. Right. You produce it from the beginning to the end. You go to the rehearsals, you take the notes, you direct, you know, outside of the camera director, you tell the you know, the cast, what you need, where you're going to cut, blah, 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 blah. You're fully, you go down to like the editing and come up with font for the name of the talk show. You pick out the music. That's pretty great. So it's pretty great. So then when you, when you transfer, not transfer, but move into half hour mm-hmm. as a staff writer, because it's really difficult to go into half writer, anything above a half staff hour. Writer, half hour, mm-hmm. even though you've had like 2,700 years of comedy before you got there, um, then you're basically no. They don't want to hear from you. On uh, my first job, Norm Macdonald hired me, who's been so gracious to me my whole career. Was he
0: on SNL when you were? Yes, uh, he did the news. He then. did Weekend Update, right?
1: And uh, so I came from SNL three years. Mm-hmm. I came from Second City. I came from years of doing my own sketch shows, my own write plays, all that. And I'm with ten men and one tiny lesbian who I adore, named Cheryl Holiday. And that's it. That's our thing. And I'm basically pulled into a room at one point saying, please don't talk so much. That's the story of my life is that fucking thing. Please don't talk so much. And I'm like, well, okay, but, you know, whatever.
0: Please don't talk so much. That we
1: don't need you to talk that much.
0: Is it, we don't need you, lady, lady? Talk so much, or we don't need you to talk so much. Well,
1: I think it's more we don't need you, staff writer, who's never been here before. Even though you're really funny, when we're trying to break stories and we need to concentrate, talk so much. Now I see that—that that's what it was.
0: Got it. And do you agree with that?
1: I think there is something to that because when you're in a room and everyone's yelling out ideas, it's hard to think. It's a different animal. It's a different machine. Um, And you know, truth be told, I didn't know it.
0: No one tells you. No one tells you. No one tells you, listen, this is the way... You've you got to learn it by someone going, come here, don't yes, talk so
1: much. Yes, exactly.
0: It's not like, we're going to do this, make sure you don't talk so much.
1: And it's not either that I got out of college and wanted to be a sitcom writer, and here's my spec, and can I be a staff writer? Mm-hmm. It's me coming in in my mid-30s, having a, a lifetime of experience in comedy, being the only woman, straight woman on staff. You know what I mean? Like, it, Not that... That part doesn't really mean anything except to say... Why can't I talk? I have a lot of experience. Right. You know what I mean.
0: Right. Right.
1: It's a very. It's a very. I was not planning on being a television writer. I had a development deal to come to uh, a development deal after I did debutant ball, which was another solo show, show I did after I left SNL that Shira Piven directed. I did it in Chicago. Uh-huh. And then after SNL ended in 98, I wanted to, I left SNL because I wanted to perform more. And I didn't think I would get any more chances because I wasn't an ingenue. So I did, I went to the, actually Evan Gore set me up at the HBO workspace. I brought my show there. I did it one night and I got a gazillion offers to develop. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't know everybody and their sister had a development deal. Right. I thought I was very special. Did you get paid for it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I pitched, you know, I was going to write and star in my own show. And they brought in a showrunner to help me because I.
0: Did you you know the showrunner?
1: No. Her name was Nancy Steen. She was hilarious. And she was sort of a a veteran TV writer. Mm -hmm. And you guys got along. Great. She Uh was from Minnesota. She was hilarious. She Mm -hmm. was. Oh, the funniest bit she ever did was she got a haircut. She was really tall in Minnesota, like like, like a Renee, Renee yes. Uh-huh. She had gotten a haircut. I'm like, oh, my God, Nancy, your hair's so cute. And she goes, is it a little, it's a little gay, a little dykey? And I'm like, no. And she goes, what about when I do this? And she put herself in a batting position. I don't, something about it made me laugh so hard because her batting stance was so fantastic. And she was really tall with short blonde hair. It just made me laugh. And so um, anyhow, what happened was that deal didn't. Happen. And I didn't know most of the deals don't happen. And then my agent was like, Well, time to get a job. And I didn't, in the moment, have the wherewithal to say, Well, I want to keep writing and performing, not be a staff writer on. Like, I, I let other people's, you know, no, ideas kind of
0: dictate my direction. But, but at that time, and it's interesting that you're saying that because I feel like that's called evolution. That's not a mistake. That's just... How How did you know any better? You did not know any better, right? Right, right. So it wasn't as if you went, I really wanted to do this, but they forced me to do that. It was like, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so they offered me that, <laughs> you know? And that's really different.
1: Well, I think also at the end of the day, it has to do more with owning what you know you know. You know what I mean? Owning like,
0: what you know you know.
1: So in other words, I was a writer-performer. And what happens is you... For me, you know, you're going after these writing jobs. And I tried to keep my performance part alive. And I think that's why I wound up ultimately doing essays and doing essay nights. And then wind up, that's how I wound up doing the book.
0: Right, the book that you just... So Mm -hmm.
1: I was able to perform a little bit by reading these stories. So that's how I kind of kept it alive. I was having a really hard time balancing... Auditioning and writing, and it was getting difficult unless I was going to go somewhere and they would say, "Write and produce your own show."
0: So what you did was you hybrided it. If I that's did. You I hybrided, hybrided it. it. You hybrided it. So you took what it is that you took, what it is that you got paid for, and you took what it is that you love to do, and you mushed them with a sparkling drop of Retson. <laughs> right. Sort so of. That. But
1: yes, that's what I did.
0: And and in that way, because I I talk to so many people these days and it's surprising when I say to to them, you get paid to be who you are. Your job is you. And what you did was you created your job for you.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think after a while, you kind of have to, um, I don't want to say keep reinventing yourself, but you are kind of.
0: But you're not reinventing yourself. You're evolving.
1: uh, Yeah, I agree with that statement. I like that more because I feel like this was always my thing, this This way to tell stories, how Uh my stories are. You're pointing at your... I'm pointing at my Kindle, but inside my Kindle is my book. Got it. And so, um, and I brought it because I wanted to show you some pictures if you were interested in seeing them. But Mm -hmm. at any rate, um, what I found myself doing a lot, like even after I was here, after I did the Norm show, I wrote another... Here
0: being LA. In
1: LA. Right. I wrote another one woman show Mm -hmm. and basically what it did was it got me another development deal. Mm -hmm. So I found myself in this pattern of either being on staff, writing these shows, which are super labor intensive and like... These shows being... One person shows. Got it. Mm -hmm. And the endurance level is insane. And I think I didn't... uh, I didn't want to write another one person show. I had all these beautiful stories. I liked reading them out loud. I started reading them out loud and I liked reading, you know, kind of half reading, half performing because it didn't have the onus of... This you're gonna watch me do a show and right. I'm putting them in air quotes, um, for like an hour. And so this kind of evolved. Do I, into I this. see
0: you with reading glasses putting them on and taking them off while you talk to the audience. I I'm don't take that. them
1: off that much because I've had them on so long I need them now. Right. Most of the time. <laughs> right.
0: It's the readers going, yes. And you know what? I want to talk to you I mean, as I'm putting <laughs> you taking them off and putting them down. It's such a great uh, mind prop to do. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to tell you something.
1: Can I talk to you for a second? <laughs> It's so lifting up
0: your glasses and putting them down.
1: Um, so anyhow, I, I think this thing that came out of having a bad year last year in terms of like every year I either staffed or I sold. In some years, I sold more than one thing. Sometimes I staffed and sold. Mm-hmm. This has been going on for coming up since 1990, so almost 20 years, 19 mm-hmm. years. And I feel very fortunate. and it, you know. And then last year, it was a little slow. It slower was slow. than I could have imagined. It wasn't
0: a little slow, it was slow.
1: Yes, it was slow. Mm-hmm. It, but it gave me the time to self-publish a book.
0: You, so in that time, you didn't go, what's happening to me? You went, i got to do something.
1: Well, I did have about a week of what's happening to me. Mm-hmm. I had a week of that sort of like, it's okay not to know what's coming. That can be exciting. That lasted maybe one bath, one tub, one soak. And then I'm like, what am I doing? And then I'm like, I gotta get this book out. I've been talking about it for a year. It's been like walking through molasses. Right. I've been crying every day about it. Right. And I put on Facebook, does anybody know someone who can help me with an ebook? My friend Annie said, my friend Lisa's in town, she just got here from Chicago. I met with Lisa, she was um, she's, uh, a she's started out as a librarian, went to art school, started out as a librarian, and now she does like digital archivation, if archivation is a word, you'd think, think I would know some words. And um, so basically she and I have does been Does she call working... it
0: I archivate? Does she say I archivate?
1: Maybe archivist?
0: Maybe archivist. But I would like to, for her to say... Uh, i like I say, archivate. I, I archivate. It sounds
1: more um, action.
0: Yeah, it does. It's like an uh, 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 if you're an archivator, I think that you probably have tools. <laughs> yes, Like exactly. a little, a tiny shovel.
1: And a tiny chisel.
0: A tiny chisel. <laughs> a chiselet. And a shovelet.
1: And a shovelet. <laughs> right. And um, so basically, we did the whole thing. And I, and I got some... Fancy friends to write, you know, blurbs and forewords, like Adam McKay and Amy Sedaris right. and Colbert. Right. And, um, uh, you had
0: them write blurbs and forewords. That's a really good sentence. <laughs> I, had, I had them write blurbs and forewords.
1: Adam McKay wrote the most beautiful foreword I ever could have imagined. And then Colin Quinn did one, and Stephen did a blurb, Amy did mm-hmm. a blurb. And then I just relied on the kindness of strangers.
0: Right. Right.
1: So now it's coming out in paperback, May 9th. I hired a PR guy, and I'm just going to finish the process.
0: Right. Finish the process.
1: Meaning I'm taking it out of the Kindle world. Right. And I'm putting it into paperback. Right. And then you can order it on paperback and have an actual book.
0: What made you decide to do that? Like you had enough sales or you thought I can make more money this way?
1: I feel like I need something in my hand for my own posterity. prosperity. Right.
0: Prosperity. Prosperity. That's a, that's a rear it's end prosti- that lasts for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you <know>, prosperity. It's <laughs> a
1: very, yes, long, happy romp. Uh, so Which is different than a long happy romp <laughs> It um. was funny. I was Wayne I always call him Wayne Dwyer. Matt Dwyer interviewed me and I kept calling saying the word squell. And my husband's looking at me going, I don't think it's squell. I'm like, what? It's either squelch? It's quelch? Or or wait, what other words?
0: Squelch, squelch, or, or quell? quell yeah. But you, if you squelch it, <laughs> if you, wait, squelch or quell? And what were you saying? I was t-
1: I was saying squell.
0: Squell. I don't. I. That the concept <laughs> of that makes me explode. Um, so you decided you wanted something for posterity. There we go. Yes. You, for pros, posterity. So you wanted something for pros, pro, posterity. On something to have in your hand and to look and at. And to I give get people. It. I get it. I get it. And
1: I'm adding two more stories. One, maybe two more. And you know, the book has beautiful color photographs of my family. Mm-hmm. My mom in the 50s with my older sister in the backyard. My dad in this fantastic 70s gold curtain having a Budweiser. You know, me and him going to a high school dance. You know, a, a father-daughter dance together. Like, they're crazy.
0: So your dad was a fireman.
1: Yes, Re- fire, fireman. Fire. Do you retired as a fire chief, uh, battalion chief?
0: On the south side. Yeah. What parish did you grow up in? Saint Gabriel. Saint Gabriel. Forty fifth uh, and Wallace. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, because everyone runs your stories online, you were in, uh, on Wallace Street. So, uh, uh, did you have? You're, you're, you have one brother or two brothers?
1: Two brothers. You have
0: two brothers. Three sisters. And, and anybody a firefighter?
1: No. Johnny's a comedian, and right. Billy works in San Francisco in, for the San Francisco Department of Transportation.
0: Uh huh.
1: He's sort of a computery guy who I think it's a little Chandler Bingish because I can't really name it, but uh-huh. he, he's uh, kind of a high up gentleman in the
0: Did fleet you, division. But you grew up with firefighters oh, and all surrounded. with cops.
1: Yes, all my all my cousins are electricians, cops. My Fireman. dad's
0: electrician. Oh yeah, union electrician. Yeah, union yeah. electrician. Yeah. I have
1: a whole slew of them.
0: Right, growing up in Chicago is different than growing up in Lagrange. I'm sorry. Oh,
1: way different, Lagrangeers.
0: People say I grew up in Chicago. What part? Yeah. LaGrange. Highland
1: Park is not Chicago.
0: Fuck no. Winnetka right? not Chicago. Mm-hmm. Wilmette not Chicago. Mm-hmm. Sorry. And all Richard right. Label lives in one of those cities. Right. And I don't know. If which you're one.
1: not under a fire hydrant in your bathing suit with high heels on, you're not in Chicago.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> I love that city. <laughs> do you I ever know. make it back?
1: Oh, I go all the time. I I'm do. am going too. again next week. I was,
0: I was there twice this month. I was there and then I came back and I was Are there. Are your again. folks still there? Yeah. Northside. Uh, my family's still there. A lot of people. A lot of Jews moved to Buffalo Grove. Don't get where it. Where
1: is Buffalo Grove? Buffalo Grove, who
0: the fuck knows? It's like near, it's Israel. It might as well be Israel. I have no idea where it's it is. It's far, right? Yeah.
1: Where do you live? Where do you guys live? White Sox, near like... No, where do you live? Oh, Sherman Oaks near Sepulveda and Mulholland. You
0: guys have a house? Yes. Because I could not live in any of the, 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 the apartment buildings over there. Oh, no. Those wide things that have the... It's It's like something out of Barton Fink... But not as awesome. That's
1: what's so great about your place. It's really Chicago. Yeah, really Chicago. But I
0: couldn't live anywhere else. And it's one of these things where it's like I'm going to find the place that I want to live in, um, and it also has to do with this is who I this is who I am. I, if you put me in one of those buildings, I wouldn't know. I would have to burn all my furniture.
1: I you mean you're talking about the ones sort of like the ones near like in the valley. Yeah. Well, you know. Here's what's interesting. L.A. is so overpopulated now. People are not, the Valley's not the worst place in the world to be anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's some really new, a lot of new condo buildings going up. Mm-hmm. Did I give you my real estate card? Because I have
0: <laughs> a couple of one bedrooms be with a
1: skylight oh of the new God. Ralphs.
0: Are you re- no, you don't. No. No.
1: Um, no. But anyhow, yeah, I get it. Some of them are icky, but there's there's some. Um, they're trying to keep up with the Joneses over the hill.
0: I know. I love. I love. For me, I feel like I need the walking around. And
1: I. Yeah. No. The this, But your area is beautiful too.
0: Yeah. But I, I get inspired, and I feel like the inspiration. Uh, if, I, I get inspired by the buildings and the age of the no, buildings. No, I, I know. Inspired by. And people. And people.
1: Walking down to Larchmont, I'm sure, is awesome.
0: It really is awesome. Walking down to Larchmont and here, I live across the street from a school. Right. And hear the kids screaming at the school. That's awesome. I need that stimulus. I really need that. Sort I know. Of stuff. I wish
1: I still had it. I've always lived in the hills since I've been here. I lived in Beverly Glen, and then we live in the hilly part. So you're kind of you're a little bit isolated mm-hmm. unless you're in the car.
0: What's your what's your writing regimen like? How do you how do you do that? Do you do I that? I don't write.
1: No, you know, I I write when I need to write. I mean, the book was hard because I didn't have a deadline. Right um right scripts for work are easy because i have a deadline right um do you work at home yeah but i i have to get really focused um i don't write every morning i I know know i know people say that and i probably would be better if i did that but i do i spend a lot of time thinking before i write and then i wind up writing fast because it's all in my brain. Mm-hmm. It kind of lays out. It doesn't mean I don't rewrite and edit and change things around. Um, and I'd rather rewrite than write.
0: Got it. Because you've already put it down.
1: Yeah. But, um, no, I do not write every day.
0: That regimen of writing every day, getting up and writing, I think I'm too old for that. I don't know, of going, oh, how do I do that? Because I have a book idea, and I've got it, and I, even I talked about it at Fred Kaz's memorial. I have a book idea, and I've got all the... I've, all, I've, all the basic shit that I need laid out. I've laid it out on the computer, and then I went. I'll come back to it years later. Do you later, have
1: um, the material, or you have the ideas for the material? I
0: have the ideas for the material. This is it. Um, it could be a billion things. It's a billion things. Well, you
1: have to decide on that. That's exactly. And, but always it. remember too. Executives love source material. So if you write your book. It's easier to sell a book than it is for you to sell a screenplay. Because people don't know you as a screenplay writer or no. a television writer. I don't know
0: that I'm even writing it to be sold.
1: I'm just uh-huh. saying, when you're saying it can be a million things, what right. do you mean? The idea can be a million things? It's,
0: is it about my philosophy about improvisation? Is it about how to, the creative process? Is it about how do you live your life uh, to be an artist and just to accept the things? Is it about how you live your life as a person and just living a life of accepting things? because a lot of what I teach and I do has nothing to do, my improv classes are, their improv classes only in clothing because it's really about how are you feeling right now about what you're doing right now, what's your emotional content right now and it's about being present. So it's sort of like a theatrical Buddhism in a way.
1: Well, I don't, everything you just mentioned sounds like it could all live together mm-hmm. and it just has to be with how, I mean you can break it down, you know what you need, every house needs one, you need a big dry erase board. Right. And then instead of putting it on your computer,
0: Gets you go lost.
1: you walk by it with your marker cuz you paint. Right. So you know what that's like. You walk by with your marker and you write this idea down. And then what'll happen is they'll start you'll start seeing what things go together. And then that And then is you know it. what the other thing is too? You don't have to write it. This idea that I have to get this thing done. Maybe you're not supposed to write it.
0: What is it? What do you mean?
1: I mean that we're kooky people, so if we keep saying we have to, we have to. There may be a day when you say, you know what? It's okay whether I do it or not, and that will be the day that you actually wind up doing something.
0: Right, and I think because it also- you're
1: rebelling against your own parenting to make yourself have to do it.
0: That's exactly it. And what As- is it buying you? And and when you say you have to do it, as opposed to I get to I get to, to do no my book. But no one says
1: I get to do it.
0: Well, it's not. I about understand a book. the philosophy. Right. right.
1: Like you don't right. have to. You know. I, know. But I but do you live get I do live
0: Right. I, I live like
1: it. that idea of staying grateful and saying I get to. But it's a very difficult.
0: It is a place difficult practice. To. Right. It's a really hard but place to get to. But if you can, you
1: can split the difference and say I don't have to do it. Right. And then maybe that'll get you to the place where you can that's say, I get to do it. That's
0: an interesting thing. So you, you don't, don't have, have to make
1: take all those steps to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I have to. I get to. In the There's a middle ground, which is I don't have to.
0: What is it that you got out of writing your book that you didn't think that would happen, that you didn't see coming?
1: What I didn't see coming was creating this emotional space to get strong enough to handle whatever the reaction is. Cool. That's why it took me so long. I had to build up my experiences. Everything I see, it takes me a couple years to emotionally be able to execute it. So I felt the book for a couple years and I couldn't do it, couldn't do it. And even when I had somebody, every day it was just like, because I was going through old photographs, everything was making me feel so much. But I kept, and my husband just said to me the other day, I've never seen you work harder on something. And um, because every day I had to go in and do more. Usually when it's time for me to write something, I just, my deadline is Saturday. I start on Monday. You know what I mean? But, and also this promotion part is very, uh, it's really hard to just be like, yes, I'm going to walk through this PR campaign, whatever that looks like. You know what I mean? But I really do feel based on, because it was such a personal work, because it was so much about my family and my neighborhood, I was very concerned initially about how my family was going to react to it. And as soon as it came out, all of my cousins fell in love with it. And I was just like, but I had to be able to handle anything they said. And I think that's what, in, in a long way to say, that's what I think the time was about.
0: I read a story that you did, a short story about the earrings. Yes. And it seemed like the major character in that, obviously the major character in that story was your mom. And how much of what you're talking about now must be in reflection of her. Does that make sense?
1: Well, I know that... um, Is she still alive? No, she passed away. That was Mm -hmm. another reason why it was so hard. Mm Mm-hmm because she's a little over two years gone. Mm And it's just like, fucking hell, you know what? They still, it's not like you have that first year and you're like, okay, I get it. Now you can come back. They don't fucking come back.
0: (laughs) Right. You're like, you're gonna
1: be gone more now? Not less? Right.
0: There's that Loudon Wainwright uh, story about his dad and saying when his dad died, he'd go to a restaurant and he said he was thinking I'll go to the restaurant we used to go to but it would be just so weird because everybody like what, they would ask about you where did you go and I go to your closet where your stuff is and your stuff is still there and your shoes are there why would you leave without your shoes mm. and that's a sentence you know why would you leave without your him. wallet um, And and that song just gets me and my parents are still alive but so you're saying that to release this and have all that information was she somebody that was very uh was, and i'm asking this because i don't know was she a, a supportive of you and the things that you were doing
1: she was but at the same time i sh- she was one of those people that my parents didn't tell you how well you were doing they told your brothers and sisters so you never knew I mean, there was a couple very clear times when she said she was very proud of me or whatever. But my friend, who I pay, told me years later that maybe one of the reasons my relationship with her was so conflicted was because I needed to stay mad so I could leave. Got because it. if I wasn't mad or angry, I wouldn't have been able to leave. Right. And if I couldn't leave, I couldn't have my the life that was supposed to be mine.
0: Right. Did you have to manufacture a reason to be mad?
1: No. Great.
0: They offered <laughs> it. The raw materials were there. They offered some raw materials <laughs> to stay mad. Because I don't know how you how you manufacture. I know how everybody manufactures mad all the time. Yes. They manufacture anger and mad, and they just manufacture that.
1: But it had to do with. There was a couple of very clear moments where I reached out to her mm-hmm. in a way to offer a friendship or a closeness or whatever, and there was no response. So there, I had shut down very early. Mm-hmm. And whether or not she recognized how important it was to me, whether she um, couldn't do it because of how she was wired, right. maybe I was just too fucking needy.
0: Who but knows? But what came first? And, but here's another thing. There's nothing that you exactly. can do about it on any end of right. that thing. And I look at so many people go, I wish I had a different relationship with my parents. Like, I don't know how you would do that. I don't know. You can wish it. But why are you spending the time wishing it where it's not going to change anything? Because again, you weren't airdropped into that situation. Right. You built up all of this experience and history and things, and the decisions that you made at the time that you're making those decisions seemed like what you were supposed to do at that time. Exactly.
1: I feel the same exact way. Every decision led to the other one. If you were making that decision with the, with the, most presence of mind that you could have then that was the moment you were in and that got you to the next moment
0: right unless you were drugged or something like that I don't know how and people are of course but unless you were drugged or something like that I don't know how you make those irrational how you look at some some decisions think that was an irrational decision because you were everything was predicated upon you making that decision again assuming that you weren't drunk or stoned or anything like well,
1: that. well that's a big assumption
0: Ooh. well <laughs> I mean, that is true too you know what I mean yes and, and, and yet I'm on talking, their side
1: and my side
0: right I'm not talking about you in particular no
1: but I'm saying right. there, was, there was a lot of drinking right. in my home and right. so they made decisions based on self right I made decisions based on self right we retaliated mm-hmm. um, but happily I was able to reach a point that by the end of her life I could love her unconditionally
0: right what a freeing thing that is
1: that was very freeing You just wanted to make me cry.
0: I don't know. Is there <laughs> any other reason to be on the earth than to make Cindy Caponera cry? Um, but it is that, that thing of that surrender. And to be at peace with that is just so vital to realize that they're, they're, I'm, I'm not Cape. Some relationships, the acceptance of saying this person's emotional output is as much as they can do. Right and there's not i cannot pull any more out of them because they're doing the best job that they can do but right you can't now. get
1: there unless you do your personal work clearly right because you as a kid that's the other thing you're always fighting as an adult that's why they always say there's four people in the room it's little you younger them older you older them so <laughs> it's sort of like i'm uh-huh. not going to have a fight with my 81 year old father about something he did when he was 30. Right. I have to be a grown-up now. I can talk to him about it, but I don't talk to him about fifteen as a 15-year-old. Right. And so I think that's the conflict.
0: Certainly. And I, I think one of the things, because starting a new relationship, I'm in a new relationship now, and I wonder how many of my reactions to uh, to, to this woman are, aren't are reactions to her, right. but are reactions to my ex-wife of 14 years.
1: Yes, of course.
0: And it's go- good for
1: her to be able to... If she can step back and say to you, you know, that's not about me, right? Right. I never said that to you once.
0: Right. Oh, and that's just so important because that's, an, uh, that's something that just happened where she said, this is not about me. And I went, no, it's not. Right. And then I went, oh. and then she said, why were you all about that? And now you're about not, why were you all angry? And now you're not. And my thought was because I wasn't in response to you. I was in response to a ghost.
1: Yes, exactly. I have to tell my husband that all the time. I don't know where you got that information, but you did not get it from me.
0: (laughs) Right? Yeah. Because we do bring these things
1: Always, And it's hard to, you know, you don't always get it in the moment. Sometimes you have to walk away, have a cup of coffee, call a friend, and they go, wait a second. Isn't this this issue? And you're like, so that's the, oh my God, I saw the funniest thing on Modern Family. It's a long story, but the end beat is that the mother goes into the daughter's room and says, you have to teach me how to use the remote control. And the daughter says, why can't daddy teach you? And she says, because we're married. And it's like, yes. And sometimes when you're married or when you're in a long-term relationship, you don't want to say you're sorry one more fucking time. It's like, I've said it six times today. I will not say it again.
0: And it doesn't mean that you're not sorry. No, it It just means means not today. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also, I said it and I meant it when I said it. Is that what you're saying? No,
1: I mean like sometimes when you're Mm. you're so human, right? You're so fallible that in the moment you might not be able to recognize that it's a ghost, and you say those things. Got it. It doesn't mean that you meant it. You were like you're keeping your side of the street clean as you saying, "I recognize now that what I said to you was inappropriate because it was really meant for my ex-wife." Right. So I'm really sorry. Right. And then they say, "You're an asshole," but okay. Right. I forgive you.
0: Right. And let's not bring it up again.
1: Exactly. But if they say if they can't take the apology and have to like read you the Riot Act while they're accepting the apology, then that's on them.
0: Right. And that's not an apology. Everyone I'm, I'm sorry, that's not accepting an yeah. apology. Um, um, uh, <laughs> Katie used to say, we'd have a fight and she'd go she'd say, I'm sorry that you feel that I'm sorry that you feel that way. And at first I thought, that's an apology. And then I realized no, that's not an apology.
1: No. She's basically saying to you, you're allowed to have your feelings.
0: Right. And I didn't see it like that. Boy, there's so much of that in that relationship that I had that I think if I was as present as I am now, I may still be married. That
1: could be true. That could be true. Unless you're going, willing to go back and give it a go, then right. you just live with the lessons and move on.
0: And that's what it is. It's like living that lesson. And I cannot go back because when, I mean, you've been married once but you know what it's like to be in a you know that divorce thing where you go it's it's a shattering it is an absolute shattering of your entire world and everything around it i
1: know i can't imagine it
0: oh my god and everything that you do your everything that you do and who you are is affected by it in that moment and at that moment and there's a wake that, that reaches a certain shore that you didn't even realize, mm. where you go, oh, I can't talk to that person anymore, or that person won't talk to me anymore, or I wanna to talk to that person, or whatever that's going to be. I wanna call up Katie and go, you know who I saw the other day? And you can't do that.
1: But why can't you do it?
0: I have done that. I mean, I'm, you can yeah. later. Right. You and can't that's do what it, it yeah, happening. Yeah. I'll say, I saw this thing and I thought about you. And wh- those moments are like, oh my God, those moments are beautiful moments. The last time I saw her, she moved to Asheville, North Carolina. The last time I saw her was one of the most beautiful things. She mm. said, come to the house, pick up your stuff. You got some stuff there. And we'd been divorced for f- three or four years at that time. And I looked at her and I said, and I thought to myself, I may, I, will never, I may never see her again. And we gave this hug that was just one of the most beautiful. Where you hold, you've been, you held on to someone for 14 years. You know every single inch of them. So when they hug you, or when you have that intimacy... There's a and, lot
1: of sense memory, yeah.
0: Oh my God, it's just so full. It's just so full.
1: But I think that's what makes life sucky and good. Because those moments are always that. And so it's this, this idea that happiness is one thing and sadness or sorrow is another thing. It's just wrong. It's all Everything is all things all the time.
0: Everything's all things all the time. And
1: so what are you you looking at? What are you choosing to experience? And, uh, you know, they're always going to walk together. Every job is a mixed blessing. Everything is always a mixed blessing.
0: They're always going to walk together. Always. That's a lovely thing to say. They're always going to walk together because that's exactly what it is. I'm reading a book now called Flow, and it came out maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and I can't pronounce the guy's name who's written it but he talks about paying attention to the experiences that you have and just to go we're living our lives with all of these experiences and what is it that you're deciding to engage in and what is it that you're deciding right. not to engage in and whatever it is that you're deciding to engage in or not deciding to engage or deciding to not engage in those are the things that make up yourself right the self the being the who it is that we are and when you pardon me when you find yourself when you find yourself in a place of um turmoil it's because you're really not accepting something or you're deciding to engage in something that isn't here
1: yeah or trying to change the thing that you can't accept
0: there's your aa you know there's your isn't that what Mm -hmm. you know the program is all about where you say you know (laughs) accepting you know just accept what you can't change those
1: but i think it takes a moment it takes a while it's not denial necessarily. I guess it is. It's sort of like, I can't believe this is happening. Why is this happening? Is this really happening? Oh, I guess it is happening. So, I mean, by the time you accept the things you cannot change, right. you've already been beaten up a little bit. Right. At, at your disbelief, at your not... So, I guess the sooner you can get to acceptance the better it's going to be but i think it's human nature to be like wait what's happening right is, is this really happening did she just say that to me was she doing a bit cuz it sounded like a bit but do people really say mean things like that to each other should i respond to it i've never had it happen before right. should i laugh at it and pretend like it's a bit should i stand up for myself and say you know what that hurt my feelings or you can't talk to me that way or you're a fucking bitch and you know like I remember getting being in Amagansett when I was uh, living in New York, and a dog—you uh, know—at the in the Hamptons. Okay. And the dog a dog bit me on the nose, and I remember very clearly thinking, "I've never been bit on the nose. How should I react? Is it hurting me? Should I cry? Should I make the man pay for my my rhinoplasty and I can get a whole new nose?" What did that dog do? Am I bleeding? Like
0: it In, was in re- such in, a short amount of time, too, yeah. right?
1: and then he would call me and say, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to settle this thing. And I'm like, well, like I could have fucking, had I been a different person with maybe some higher self-esteem, I don't know. I could have, or a less uh, moral or, you know, person with integrity, I could have said, I need surgery because I have two little scars on my nose. I'm an actress, and I have a scar on my nose. Like I, I don't know, and I'm sure he was worried. Of course. But he wound up, you know, his dog wound up hurting a woman with, you know, who lived in a five-floor walk-up. What did I care? I wasn't like, I didn't know anything from suing someone.
0: And not only that, who wants to hold up that whole thing about the suing thing? And it's like all that time that you put into like. Suing oh, I know. All that stuff. And I'm a
1: true, I'm like, I'm going to tell the truth. Does it look that bad? No. Am I ever going to be the actress that people are going to like? Be the beauty person? Probably not. Um, so, what are two little things on my nose with some aloe on it? Like, at any rate, it's it.
0: For me, that whole what you're saying right there, it's the amount of time those of us, those of us, those of us I'm going to put myself in there. The uh, the amount of time uh, uh, to get to the point of acceptance. Uh, this is just the way it is. The amount of time to get to that point of acceptance has become shorter and shorter and shorter as I get older yes. and am more aware of the joy of the acceptance. So there's that, that phrase, and I've mentioned before in this, that Michael, Reverend Michael Bernard Beckwith says, like when he's, a challenge is thrown at him, he kind of leans back, symbolically leans back on the couch and says, I wonder how the universe is going to take care of this one. Nice. And just to go, I cannot wait to find out what that's going to be like. And the more that you realize, you know what, everything always works out.
1: Yes, always. It does. You have to allow room in every situation for some kind of spiritual solution to present itself.
0: Because always, it always does present itself. And,
1: it's, and I don't mean a religious solution. And I, I don't even mean angels, hocus pocus, anything. Some way, there's some other energy in every situation that's not your energy or the energy of the thing coming at you. And if you make space for whatever that third energy is, you will be shown a solution.
0: And if you make space for whatever that third energy is, you will be shown a solution. Clearly. Clearly. And it's that stepping back and, and taking those moments when your nose was bitten by that dog to go, all this stuff is happening right now. I'm going to sit back and go, what do I need to do right now? Just what do I need to do?
1: Right, what's in front of me.
0: What's in front of me? Not what's this trial going to be like or what am I going to do with the money? Should I sue them? Or how is well, any of that just to say what's going to happen? Because what's going to happen doesn't matter.
1: But it also has to do with you doing what's right for yourself instinctively. And I think it takes a long time to discern what your instinct is. And so you're going to get a lot of input from people. You should have sued them. You should have. Why didn't you blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, I did what I was capable of doing at the moment.
0: That's it. I did what I was capable of doing at the moment. I did what I, I remember breaking my foot and thinking, oh, I live alone. I live on the second floor. I, I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have a connection. I don't have a laundromat. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. That was, this is going to be interesting. Right. And it was. And I don't remember being in pain. I remember thinking, oh, uh, my coffee cup's over six feet away, and I have a broken foot. This is going to be interesting to get my coffee cup. A shower was just an unbelievable experience. (laughs) You know, to get into a shower. What's that?
1: We call it a shub. A shub? It's sort of like you put the tub water on, and you do a lot of splashing. (laughs) And then you oh, get, is that what it is? Yeah, I call when it you, a shub. A
0: shub? Mm-hmm. A shub. The greatest thing that I discovered was this thing called a shower chair. Oh, yeah. Sure. I think and everybody could, should have a shower you chair. You could stick
1: your foot out and then take a shower. Well, I would chair.
0: leave my foot in there, but I, could, I would sit in that chair and I, like i get a Korean bath. <laughs> Did you do the Korean bath? Did you ever do those? I,
1: I haven't. I, they, I, they make me nervous. Why? Too many little hands and scrubbing. I don't got know it. where they're going to go. <laughs> and I'm going to be wet and soapy and naked. And there's going to be little teeny hands all over my body. Well, and that, uh, I don't it. know what to do about that.
0: Did you, Did you? are you a church goer now?
1: No, I do not go. To, I meditate. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I actually try different churches. Like I'll go to Catholic church when I'm home if there's a mass for my mother or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I, like I love the Jewish church. There's something. It's called the temple. Oh, yeah. The temple. I don't go to temple, but I've been to a couple of our mitzvahs Mm -hmm. and I love them because the parents get up and basically tell everyone how much they love their kid. That to me is a very sweet moment. I also love that they're okay with having money. Right. That they do their good works on Earth by mitzvah and charity work. So there's a lot of it that makes sense to me. There's a lot of it that doesn't, of course, but there's a lot of it spiritually. That makes sense to me. I in think, the Judas, Judas oh, I keep Jewish, saying
0: Judas. Judas, that's Jewish a different guy. That's a faith. different guy. Right. The Judas faith is yes, a very different. Yes, in the Judas some faith. Some people would say they're the same thing. Um, I think that kids, I, I love the idea of the spirituality as opposed to the religiosity because spirituality, like let's teach people what spirituality means and then offer them a deity. You have to be kind. able to
1: find it without a building. If you can find it without a building, then you don't have to go to a Catholic church that's molesting its kids. Right. But if you don't find it without the
0: building, right,
1: then you keep giving money to an entity that's not taking care of you.
0: Right. That's not taking care of you on so many levels. Right. It's not taking care
1: but of you. if you know in your heart it's there, then the what you just said, the afterthought is, maybe I want to be with a community of like-minded people, right Maybe I want to take what I like and leave the rest. Maybe I want to enjoy part of the ceremony of this beautiful procession and Christmas you know mass and all of its light and all that. but
0: all of its light, you're saying the, uh, the
1: light the beauty the, of the, the
0: beauty of that not, of the tradition not the
1: of it. the whatever the tradition is, right. you know, like the Bamitzvah, Mitzvah, the beauty of the sound of the Torah being read or in, you know, the beauty of the Om in a, in a Buddhist practice. Like you can get the beauty of all those practices and sort of create your own. If you know that you don't have to be in one.
0: Right. Right. You don't have to be in one. To be able to, because I totally agree with that. Um, one of the things about Agape Spiritual Center, do you know that place? Yes. Yeah. Is they have this meditation service. And to call it a meditation service is like, it's not really a service. Some woman goes, and we're going to do, do, and ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and so for, for 15 minutes, 1,500 people are quiet.
1: It's very powerful. Even when I'm meditating with a group of people, I do Vedic meditation. You're when you do it all together, it's very powerful. You go
0: much deeper, right? Right, and you're listening to breath, and you're listening to you're sharing this, and nothing is bothering you. You're not engaging in anything bothering you,
1: right? Because in that moment, you forgive the bothers. Like in my meditation, they say think of all those outside noises as just extra thoughts that you're just gonna let
0: move through your brain. It's interesting because when, uh, when I teach certain things, I uh, will we'll take a moment just to stand in a circle and just um, be in soft focus and just to pay attention to nothing and then to layer all these sounds upon the nothing, that, that sound of silence, so to speak, that, that is underneath everything. And then we layer, we, we just take an inventory of all the sounds that are on top of that. And I'll ask them, who heard a sound? And a lot of people, they'll tell me the sound. And they will say, who heard a noise? And someone will say, oh, that car going by was a noise. And I said, what made it a noise? And they'll say, well, it bothered me. Did it make it go away? Or did you calling it a noise made it more, really highlighted it as something right, that you right. don't want to do? What if you just called out a sound? So all those things that come at you, you're not attaching it to, why is that here trying to get right. in my way? Right. Or getting in my way.
1: Well, I think attaching is the key word.
0: The non attaching right.
1: is what gives you the freedom.
0: Right. The non-attachment is what gives you the freedom. And a lot of people say, it's impossible for me to, to non-attach. And I want to say this, if you say so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I want to say this, if you say so.
0: Yep. Because that's really true, right? If you say that that bothers me or I can't unattach, then you're making that a reality.
1: What I've been observing is the idea of non-attachment is one thing, but where does it fit in the concept of passion? And I don't mean physical, sexual passion or intimacy that way. I mean passion for something. Right. So walking that fine line between lack of attachment and passion for... Um, how do you get things done?
0: Yeah, but you're not saying... I, when I say non-attachment, I don't mean that you're sitting in a room just letting everything no, come No, I understand you. that. Yeah. I'm just saying, right.
1: you know, there's people like... And that's... When we talked about the, your, the Jewish faith, when I see... When I see very passionate people uh, that do charity work, you know what I mean? And you might meet someone and they are the... And this is non-Jews and Jews alike. Someone who is participating in a charity of some sort, very passionate about it. When you meet that, the reputation of this person is, oh my God, she's fantastic, but she once she gets you, you, she will not let you go unless you make a donation to blah, blah, blah. So, but there's something to be said about that passion. There's something to be said about my oldest sister who lived for my mother and took care of her, made sure she was, always had nice clothes, always had great lotion on her body, showered every day, cleaned every day. You know what I mean? There is some people whose passion serves them and they get things done. So my thought is my non-attachment, my ability to say, trying to discern how do I become the passionate person who does good works and how do I remain the non-attached person who doesn't get affected by everything around me and is able to stay spiritual and do good works. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, I totally understand because so you're
0: saying that to me. I, I get it. And there's something that is non-attachment. Also, the awareness of attachment. So the awareness of my non-attachment is my non-attachment. to be aware of to be aware of not attaching. So I'm, uh, to be aware I'm not engaging attachment. Engaging in that a shame spiral or engaging in an anger episode. You know, to say, I'm going to engage in an anger episode and then I'm going to surrender it. Do you know what I mean? It's the idea of I'm going to be aware of what it is that I engage in.
1: So in other words, let's say you have a project, some charity or some good works that you want to do, Mm -hmm. and it's going to take a lot of work. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is you can participate in that, or what I'm garnishing from what you're saying is, we can participate in that wholeheartedly and then along the way practice the non attachment with stuff that gets in the way. Like if this person doesn't want to participate, that's fine, but I'll find another person to participate. So you can have, you can, both can live in the same.
0: Clearly, because body. what you're doing is, you are, I think what gets me with certain people, what, the, <laughs> who gets me with certain people? I think what, what, it's the mindlessness that they don't understand that they can unattach. They can be unattached. They don't, have,
1: they don't know they have the choice.
0: Exactly. Right. And, it, and, and, and so it's like, you made me get angry. It's like, no, I didn't. You had a choice of being angry.
1: But the thing is, if you don't have a spirit life, you don't have the faith to know that you don't have to engage.
0: Absolutely, and, and once you define it, it exists. And to, to let people know the difference between a, re, a, religion, a, a religious practice and a spiritual practice, and very often they'll be one and the same, the religious practice will include a spiritual practice, to know that a sp- the spiritual practice is different than the religious practice. Because the religion is the, is the whistles and bells and the spiritual practice is more of an existential feeling of I am here right now with the feelings that I have right now and I own those feelings and I'm in charge of those feelings. Right? Yes. I'm, not right. I'm saying, does that make sense? No,
1: no, no. It makes sense. But also if you get down to the basics, if it's just always really about love all the time, it's just how do you get to the love from wherever you're at emotionally. So if you, can, you might not be able to get to the love if you're engaged in particular feelings concerning someone
0: oh man right
1: you can't get to the love until you detach or unengage and say this is where they're at right now i'm here right now and i can still love them i don't have to love their behavior you know there's a lot of freaking self-talk that goes on and it's hard to you know i don't know i've been doing it for a long time so i kind of it comes to me more naturally not always loving people but knowing that there's tools at my disposal that I can tap into. That's what I know. I know I have a lot of tools at my disposal, and if I choose to tap into them, if I can create the space, I can tap in, and I'll have a different experience. Great. That's all I know in terms of my my being on this planet experience.
0: I'm going to stop there. That was great. We'll end there. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: How do you get to the love from where you are? That just might be the meaning of life. Thank you, Cindy, and congratulations on your book, I Triggered Her Bully. Available on audible.com now, read by Cindy Caponera, the one and only. It's also available on Kindle too. ADD Comedy with Dave Rozowski also thanks Laura Parker, my co-producer. My dear friend, musician extraordinaire, Al Rose for our theme song, I Feel Like a Million Dollars from Al's album, Sad Go Lucky. Oh, my producer emeritus, Ian Foley, who originally judged up that episode with Cindy. And we thank you, our listeners. If you liked our show, please give us a positive note on iTunes, won't you? If you're interested in having me at your theater, your improv school, your corporate event, your hunting trip, maybe, I don't know. Uh, please drop me a line at dave at Thanks. And we'll hear you in our ears.